Welcome to the Three Strands Podcast. Thank you for joining us. It's our hope and prayer that you will experience God's blessing in your life through our ministry. At Three Strands Church, our goal is to create a culture of redemption where people are free to experience the truth and grace of Jesus Christ. Happy Mother's Day. I've got the perfect topic for moms today. Uh, We're in a series called Out of Your Mind. And uh, it's all about escaping the prison of your mind if you're trapped by discouragement or depression, anxiety, worry, fear. We're trying to break free from that. Part of that, uh, we're doing like a memory verse challenge, okay? And so we have to the end of May to memorize two verses from the Bible, Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2. And so each week of the series, I've been reading through them with you um, as your help on Sundays. But you have to read through them on your own during the week if you want to memorize them. If you memorize them by the end of May... Come see me, recite it to me. Um, you will be, uh, what was I saying? You'll be handsomely rewarded. Yeah, you'll be handsomely rewarded. There, there will be a benefit for you, okay? So let's read it together today just to uh, stay together. Ready? Romans 12, 1 and 2. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you'll learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Romans 12, 1 and 2. All right, so memorize that. If you want a card with those verses on it, they're on the back table. You can grab one on your way out and uh, take it with you today. If you want to follow along in your Bibles, we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Most of the time today, it'll be on the screen. The verses will be on the screen also. But if you want to follow along in your hard copy or on your Bible app, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is where we're going to be. So um, I don't know if it was intentional, but just kind of worked out this way. We were planning this series, and then the dates got all switched around this year because we had some cancellations because of weather and all the craziness of COVID last year and all that. So I don't know if this was intentional, but it worked out this way that We're talking about something today that I think every mother probably wonders or looks for every week, maybe every day. Really, fathers probably look for this too, but I want to talk with you today about the way of escape, the way of escape. So if you're a mom, you know what I'm talking about, right? Like about every week, you're probably thinking like, I could use a little escape, a day away, an afternoon away from the kids, uh, maybe away away from the husband, I don't know, but the way of escape. And so uh, we're going to look at one verse in 1 Corinthians 10. Let me read you the verse first, and then we'll back up and kind of study through it together. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience, but God will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. That's the verse we're going to kind of zero in on today. And what I'd like to do is just go through that verse and pull out three phrases that kind of stuck out to me while I was studying it this week. Just three phrases, and then I want to kind of reword them so they make a little bit of sense to us. They're easier for us to remember. But the way of escape that's promised in that verse and how you can access it if you're somebody who's battling with one of those things in your mind and you're trying to change your life or get out of your mind so you can Stop fighting the same battle. So let me just go through these one at a time, and we'll look at them together, and then we'll just reword them so they're a little easier for us to understand. Like, look at that verse again. Okay, here's the first one. 
the temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. Phrase number one, ready? Phrase number one. It's nothing new. It's nothing new. I know sometimes it feels like it is, but there is no such thing as a new temptation. The temptations that you're facing now are the same exact temptations that your parents faced. I know you don't always feel that way. They're the same temptations that people in the Bible face. They're the same temptations that Adam and Eve faced back in the Garden of Eden. They're all the same. There's no such thing as a new temptation. And no matter how you feel, you're not the only person going through what you're going through. And the devil would love to convince you of that, to make you think you're all alone, you're on an island, nobody else feels this way, nobody else knows what it looks like or feels like to experience what you're experiencing. But there should be a little bit of relief in that for you. That should hopefully drive out a little bit of shame in your life. Maybe you're a person that, I feel ashamed to even come into a church. I'm not like those people, or I feel like there's good people in the world, and I'm not really one of them. I'm below them. I feel a lot of shame about the way I live or the way I think or the way I feel sometimes. But this should give you some encouragement that that's not really the case, that we're all equally messed up, that we all face the exact same temptations and all deal with the exact same struggles. And so you don't have to feel like you're below anybody else. We all need the exact same grace. So in theology, or if you take like a Bible class in a college or something like that, they break grace down into two categories. They'll call it common grace and special grace, right? Everybody in the whole world who's ever lived receives common grace. Common grace is like a, a gift or a goodness from God that everybody in the whole world receives simply because they're created in the image of God. So God doesn't discriminate when it comes to common grace. Everybody who's ever been born has value and is loved by God simply because he made them in his image. Everybody who's ever been born and who's living now or who's ever lived experiences the same common grace in that they get to live and breathe. God doesn't only allow the righteous people to live. He doesn't only allow people who follow his son and do what he says to breathe. He gives this common grace to everybody. But then there's special grace. Special grace is like what in churches they would call like that saving grace. It's grace or goodness from God that's only available to those who will ask him for it and who will trust him with their lives, who will literally surrender their will to his and in exchange he will give them goodness, everlasting life, peace and freedom in their heart. That grace isn't available to everybody, but it's like that difference between common grace and special grace made me think there's a, there's a common temptation. So you shouldn't think of your temptations as some kind of special thing that only you deal with. No, they're common to everybody. There's no temptation that is unique to you. They're the same for everybody. I, sometimes we'll hear people say like, you know, the world's so much worse now than it used to be. And, and in many ways they're right, but the struggles that a teenager or somebody in their 20s is facing now is no different than the struggles that I was facing when I was a teenager. I was in my 20s now. They've taken on a different form. The, it's a different manifestation, but it's still the same temptation. Does that, does that make sense? It's like I needed the same grace to deal with AOL Instant Messenger that teenagers now need to deal with Snapchat. If you don't know what AOL, just look it up if you don't know what that means, right? But it's no different. It's the same grace. It's the same grace needed, and it's the same temptations and struggles faced. 
And so Paul's writing this letter to the church at Corinth, and that church is screwed up. I mean, messed up. Like, like if they were a church today in America, people would be bad-mouthing them. Everybody would be talking about how they shouldn't go there because they're not a real church. Like, they were screwed up. They were wild. Like, they used to come to church to have communion, and then they'd get drunk on the communion. That's why we don't do real wine at our church because y'all can't be trusted. Like, I don't know what Sam would do if we put out, like, a bunch of real wine. So that's why we just do Welch's instead. But it's like they'd come to church to take communion, and they'd all be getting drunk. And I love it when people are like, oh, man, we just need to get back to the way church was in the New Testament. I'm like, you mean like the church at Corinth where, like, Paul had to write him a letter to tell some dude in the church to stop sleeping with his stepmom? That kind of church? Is that what you're talking? They were just as messed up as we are. There's nothing different. The struggles are the same. Don't, don't kind of, you know, more, grandize it in your head thinking like, oh, back then churches were like, they had it all together and they were the perfect church. And now we're the messed up church. No, like we're all the messed up people. We all face the exact same temptations. We're all dealing with the same old stuff that's always been dealt with. And don't try to go the other way and make your struggles seem like they're not just worse, but they're better than other people's struggles. It's easy to kind of come up with this list and be like, well, here's a list of all the things you could do wrong, and like people need God's grace for that, but I don't really need that grace because my sin's different than everybody else's. No, we all are in the same boat. You get what he's saying? There's nothing new. Solomon even said in the Old Testament, he's like, there's not one single thing new under the sun. Everything's been done before, everything's been tried before, everything's been felt and experienced before. It's nothing new. That's phrase number one that kind of stuck out to me. Here's the second one. Let me show it to you in the verse again. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience, but God will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you're tempted, he will show you a way out. What's he saying? What's he saying to us? Here's what he's saying. You ready? It's nothing new, but there's a way out. There's a way out. There's hope. It doesn't have to always beat you. You ever felt trapped? Maybe trapped inside of yourself? And you look for a way out. And, and we find all kinds of ways out of trapped feelings. We find affairs and divorce. We find drugs and alcohol. We find food and we find anger. We find all kinds of ways to deal with our feelings and our emotions. Maybe you've looked for a a way out, a way to escape what's happening in your life. You've tried everything. It, it made me think this week, and this is ironic because in this passage, I'm going to show it to you in just a second, but the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 doesn't often get talked about in church. This verse, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that we're looking at, it gets pulled out a lot all by itself just for people to look at and be like, oh, okay, there's no temptation that can overtake me. Well, that is the wrong interpretation of that verse. There's a temptation that can overtake all of us. That's not what the verse is saying. But the beginning of the chapter, Paul says to him, hey, I want to remind you of your history. I want to remind you about all of your ancestors. And he takes them way back to a story that often gets talked about in the Bible that is um, kind of like the, the key point in the Bible to take people back to the frame of reference for what they're going through now. It's the story 
of how the nation of Israel kind of got their start back in Egypt. When they were little more than just a, a clan or a small group of people, all in the family of Jacob. And Joseph is in Egypt and he was a slave and he rises to be first in command over all of Egypt just after Pharaoh. He delivers not just his family but the whole known world. And Pharaoh says to him, Joseph, take your whole family, the house of Jacob, and they can all live here in Egypt. They can live here and, and be safe and they can prosper. And so the house of Jacob moves to Goshen. Goshen is like the furthest eastern part of Egypt. It's smack dab right in the middle between like all the rest of Egypt and, and the, for you guys to be like that way, I guess, all the rest of Egypt and the promised land or Canaan where God had promised to send Abraham and his descendants one day. So here is Goshen right in the middle and the family of Jacob sets up camp there and starts to live there. And Goshen was like this really fertile place right next to the Nile River. And it was a place of escape for the family of Jacob. A place to escape famine, a place to escape poverty, a place to escape the rest of mainstream Egyptian society, and to be safe on their own as a family. But then something happened. A few hundred years passed. There was another pharaoh and another pharaoh. and Eventually a pharaoh came to power. and He didn't know anything about Joseph. He didn't know the family of Jacob. He had no connection or ties to them. All he sees is a bunch of people who aren't Egyptians multiplying and multiplying and taking up space in their country. And so he decides to enslave them in the very place that Jacob and his family settled to escape is now the place where they get enslaved. They start, making them, they start making them build bricks and make bricks and not even giving them the right materials to do. They enslaved them to build all these things for the Egyptians. And there they are, and that happens to us too. That the place you escape to becomes the very place you get enslaved in. And I get it. We escape for all kinds of reasons. Some of us escape to try and survive. And you escape maybe to a relationship that you know deep down actually isn't healthy for you. But you were just so lonely. And so you settle for somebody that doesn't love Jesus. Because you'd rather walk with somebody in the wrong direction than walk alone in the right direction. I want to give you credit today. I want to give you credit for just not wanting to curl up and die, but deciding to try and escape. It was the wrong way to escape, but at least you didn't just give up on life. But you escape to this relationship, and it, it, it helps. You don't feel as lonely. But all of a sudden, something in your life changes. Now your allegiance to God is gone. Your commitment to follow His Son, nowhere to be seen. You've still got this relationship, but now the very relationship you escaped to has become a relationship that you're enslaved in. It's not just relationships. It's anything. You can escape to almost anything to try and medicate your pain, deal with your loneliness, give yourself some kind of treatment for discouragement or depression or anxiety. It's not the right way out, but it is a way out. What Paul is saying to us today is it's nothing new. 
But there's a better way out. There is a way out. Here's the third phrase I want to show you. Look at that verse with me again. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. But God will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you're tempted, he will show you a way out. I love this phrase at the end. So that you can endure. Let me ask you today, has the Lord brought you out of something in your life ever? Maybe a better way to say it would be, has the Lord brought you through something? Because that's the way it works, really. I don't know if you noticed or not in this verse, but, but the Lord doesn't show you a way out so you can run and hide from it. He doesn't show you a way out so that you can pretend like it never happened or it isn't happening. He shows you a way out so you can endure it. It's nothing new. There's a way out, and you can endure it. But most of us just want to hide. That isn't God's plan. No, he has to bring me through the valley of the shadow of death. Why? So I can see it isn't actually death. It's just a shadow. And he is my shepherd. So I'll never be in want. He sits me down at a table in the presence of my enemy and gives me a feast. But I'm still sitting in the middle of my enemies. It's nothing new. There's a way out. I can endure it. But he's going to bring me through it, not around it, not away from it. And listen, you can literally make your escape from your struggles anything. You can make your escape from your temptations just about anything. But I just want to ask you that question today. Can I ask it to you? you? Nobody in the room can answer it for you, only you. And nobody would know you better than yourself anyhow. So let me ask you this question today. What have you escaped to? What have you escaped to that you're now enslaved by? What have you escaped to that you're now enslaved by? A substance, a relationship. See, you can escape to drugs, you can escape to sex, but it doesn't always have to be stuff like that. You can escape to food. You think about like where they were in Goshen, it was like prosperous, food grew easily. They probably had like Kentucky fried quail or something like that, you know. It was like a good place, but then all of a sudden something changed. And they got enslaved. It can be anything. It can be shopping. What about cynicism? You can use cynicism as your escape. All of a sudden, you don't trust anybody, and everybody's got bad motives, and you turn around, and, and it's a way to protect yourself. If I don't trust anybody, then nobody can hurt me. And so that's the way you start to live, but before long, the very cynicism that you escape to now enslaves you because you're a miserable person all by yourself that has no relationships in your life because you can't trust a soul. What about blaming people? That can be an escape. If I blame everybody else for what's wrong and I never have to take any ownership of anything that I'm doing wrong, then I can protect myself from ever being the bad guy. I can always feel a little better about myself, and it works for a while. The idea that sin doesn't work is a bad idea. Whoever's preaching that from their pulpits is lying to people. Sin works. 
It always works. If it didn't work, you wouldn't even do it. It just doesn't let you endure. It just doesn't work forever. It just works for a while. The people that are up front preaching and telling you, like, don't go out and have sex outside your marriage because it won't be enjoyable, they're fools. It won't endure. It won't bring you what God's offering you, but it is a way to escape. The people that are saying, hey, don't go out there and try drugs, they don't even feel good. They've never had drugs then. They're foolish. There's always a crash, but it works in the moment. You can escape to anything. You start blaming everybody for all your problems and everything that goes wrong in life, and all of a sudden, you feel a little better about yourself, and they're the jerk, and you're the good guy, but before long, the longer you blame everybody else, then the more you become bitter at the world. And all of a sudden, the blame that you use to escape becomes the bitterness that now traps you and enslaves you. We were at Walmart last week, and I told a couple of people here this story, I think, but we were at Walmart last week, and I don't even know what you were doing. You must have been inside. I was outside in the car loading the car or something. But So uh, I bring the cart back to the building, you know, because I don't want the employees to have to go get the carts out of the, you know. So I take the cart back to the building. We were just parked close. That's why I did that. And uh, so I go back to the building, I drop off the cart, and I'm walking back to our car, and these two ladies come out of the front door at Walmart. So if you've ever been to the Somerset Walmart, you come out that front door, you, you hang a right, and you go down to like where the lawn and garden stuff is and all that. So I'm down there like by the lawn and garden stuff. They come out the front door, and they hang a right, and they're walking right down the middle of the road. And one of them's got a cart, the younger one had a cart. They looked like they were, I don't know, 20s, 30s, something like that kind of punks, you know. No, I'm just kidding. So they're walking down the middle of the road with this cart, and I notice it, and I notice that behind them, this truck pulls up, can't get past, because they're walking right down the middle of the road. And then another, like, 30 seconds ago, about four cars had lined up behind them. And I just give them, Sam, I do one of these. Like, I look at them, I just go, you know, just kind of, they don't see me, you know, but I'm just thinking to myself, you idiots. That's all <laughs> All right, so there's like four cars. Okay, so they walk almost the whole way to the lawn and garden section until the older lady eventually realizes somebody's behind them. And she says to the younger lady, get, get out of the way. There's people trying to get through. All right, now at that moment, there's a lot of things you could say that would be the right answer. But this lady looks at that truck behind her, and I hear her say out loud to the other lady, well, why didn't he beep to let me know he was there? And I'm just thinking, like, you're walking down the middle of the road. My whole life growing up, I was told, don't walk down the middle of the road. You know what I mean? She's clearly wrong, but yet it's still somebody else's fault. You see what I'm saying? You can run to blaming everyone, everybody else for so long that you're just bitter at the whole world. Here, this guy behind her is just trying to be polite, not honk his horn at her, and wait patiently and she's ready to, like, cuss him out because he didn't be better. I'm thinking, you're wrong. It's still somebody else's fault. See what happens? You run to some behavior or some approach or some medication to deal with your problems. And before long, the very thing you ran to to relieve the pain is now the very thing inflicting the pain on your life. And so if you back up to the beginning of this chapter, Paul says to him, I need you to remember what it was like back then. What it was like for your ancestors when they left Goshen in the wilderness. 
They spent 40 years wandering around the wilderness, and what they did was basically find all kinds of different ways to escape how they were feeling. Sexual immorality, worshiping idols, complaining and grumbling to God, doing their own thing whenever they felt like it, and over and over again, it didn't go well for them. 40 years they wandered around like that. And Paul says to him, I need you to remember, I'm not going to read it all to you, you can read it on your own in the beginning of 1 Corinthians 10, but he says this whole group of people that left Goshen, they all had access to the exact same miracles. All of them walked through on dry ground when the Lord split the Dead Sea. They all had access, they all had access to the exact same miracles. They all had access to the exact same spiritual food, he says. They all had access to the exact same spiritual water, he says. They all had access to all the same manifestations of Jesus that showed up back then that are showing up now. Here's what he's saying. Let me translate that into today's. Here's what he's saying to you. You ready? You all have access to the exact same Bible. You all have access to the exact same church. You all get to come in hear the exact same preaching. You all have access to the exact same miracles. You can all see the exact same people have their lives transformed by the Holy Spirit and surrender their souls to the Lord and see them become something brand new. You all have access to all the same great stuff from God. But then he gets to verse 5, and this is what he says to him. Yet God was not pleased with most of them. And their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. You know what that means? That means they spent 40 years walking around the wilderness dropping dead. Because they wouldn't take that information they were getting. They wouldn't take those miracles they were seeing. They wouldn't take Jesus showing up and doing great things in their lives. They wouldn't take it and surrender to him and escape his way. Instead, when they felt miserable or discouraged or afraid, they escaped their own way. You can read them all on your own. They're right there in 1 Corinthians 10. They decided to commit a bunch of sexual sin and God killed some of them. They decided to worship some idols and God killed some of them. They decided just to start complaining about the food God was giving them and they ki he killed some of them. They decided to do it their own way, but it's just the way I want to be. It's the way I am. That's on you. You can do whatever you want. It's not going to endure. And the place you escape to is going to eventually enslave you. Only Jesus shows us the right way to escape. We can find all kinds of other ways to escape. All right, so there's one little piece of this verse I left out for you. I'm going to show it to you here in just a second. But there's one little piece of this verse I left out to you, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It's the piece that makes the whole thing work together. It's, it's kind of like the... It has like a, a rainbow effect over the rest of the verse. It made me think this week of a, one of my former bosses. I was telling Sam this before church, right? But I had a, a boss, and I had a pretty good relationship with the guy. We could kind of joke back and forth. And so one day I went up to him. This, this phrase made me think of this. I went up to him one day. You guys can use this at work with your boss this week if you want, but only if you have a good relationship with him. I don't want you getting fired. But I went up to him one day, and I was like, hey, man, I know my name's David, but you can just start calling me Elmer. And he goes, Elmer? I goes, because I'm the glue that holds this place together, baby. That's what I told him. So try that this week. See if you get a raise if you try that, right? But that's what I thought of when I saw this phrase, okay? Let me, let me show you to you. It's right in the middle of the verse. 
He says the temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. But God is faithful. He won't allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you're tempted, he'll show you a way out so you can endure. What's he saying? Let me, let me kind of rephrase that for you. The way it would really be interpreted or the way it would really sound if you took the importance of that phrase, but God is faithful, and applied it to the whole verse like it should be. It would sound something like this. But God is faithful, so the temptations you're facing aren't, aren't temptations that you're the only one facing. They're not unique to you. Because God's too faithful to set you up for failure like that. He's not going to give you something harder than everybody else is facing. He's not going to give you something different that there's no answer to. God is faithful, so the, so the temptations in your life are no different from what others are experiencing. God is faithful, so he won't allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. God is faithful, so when you are tempted, he'll show you a way out. God is faithful, so you can endure it. See how this phrase, it like, it's like an umbrella over the whole verse. The only reason that you can be sure the temptations you're facing aren't unique to you is because God is faithful. The only reason you can be sure that there's a way out is because God is faithful. The only reason that you'll know you can endure it is because God is faithful. The only reason that you can stand is because God is faithful. Do you see it? I know you're sitting there thinking like, it's like an infomercial. You're like, well, what is it? Like, what is the way of escape? I heard you talk about all the wrong ways of escape, but what is the right way of escape? This is it right here. It's in one phrase. We're going to expand it just a second, but this is it, that God is faithful. Let me explain it to you because it's not going to make sense until you see it in context. But this is why you can be sure of the rest of this verse. I mean, how long will we keep escaping to the things we try only to see them not endure before we'll start to escape God's way? In other words, how long will we try to save ourselves before we let him save us for eternity, through our temptations, in our struggles, in our mind. How long will we keep trying to do? I mean, think about it for a second. Most of us can't even save a little bit of money out of our paycheck. How are we going to save our souls? You know what I mean? Like, how are we going to save ourselves from temptation? How are we going to save ourselves for eternity? We can't even set aside like 20 bucks out of our paycheck each week. Think about it. If what we were trying was working, it would have worked by now. If what you were running to to escape life was working, it would have worked already. But if you're still battling loneliness and fear and discouragement and anxiety and anger and depression, it's not working. So let's escape God's way. We can hold on tightly to what we believe because God is faithful. Let me show it to you. It's in Hebrews chapter 4. Super cool passage, Hebrews chapter 4, that describes Jesus as being like our high priest, one who goes to bat for us with God. Listen to it, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. How do I escape? Let's start right there. We hold on firmly 
to what God says we're supposed to believe. We hold on firmly to it, okay? doesn't stop there. It isn't just that Jesus is in heaven going to bat for us, and he's saying, I'm faithful, so you can believe everything I'm saying. It goes deeper than that. Look at verse 15. This high priest, Jesus, this high priest of ours, understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same temptations we do, yet he did not sin. Okay, so I read this, and then I started arguing with the Bible. That's, that's like real weird, like when you start, like people are like, what are you talking to yourself for? So I'm starting to argue with the Bible. I'm thinking, Jesus faced all the same t- temptations I did. I don't think so. Jesus didn't have any kids. You think Jesus ever like wanted to wring somebody's neck because they wouldn't obey him? Like, you know, my, my daughter's, you know, I don't ever want to wring your neck. I'm just kidding. Jesus didn't have Amazon Prime telling them that like two-day shipping was going to take as long as they wanted it to now because COVID hit two years ago. He didn't have to deal with all the same frustrations I do, did he? See, sometimes we like overcomplicate sin and temptation. There's, no, there's, just like I said at the beginning, it's different manifestations, but it's all the same temptations. The Bible really says there's only three kinds of temptations you can face. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, in the pride of life. Jesus faced all three of them. If you were here about a month ago, we did a series called Deceiver. I said, the devil only attacks you three ways. Those are the three ways. And Jesus faced all three of them in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4. I don't know if you remember from that series, us talking about that story. But Jesus is driven out into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. Not, not asked to go, not sent says he was driven or compelled to go out into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. And he gets there and he fasts and he prays for 40 days and 40 nights. And at the end of that time, the devil comes to him and tries to tempt him, just like he tries to tempt all of us, but Jesus did not sin. He didn't give in. He used the way of escape. And I thought about, I wonder why Jesus had to do that in the wilderness. Why didn't he just do it in town? Like, why didn't he go? Because I don't like to be outside very much. I'm thinking, like, why didn't he just stay home and fast and pray? But Jesus was, like, compelled or driven to go out into the wilderness. And the Bible doesn't really say, but I want to think there's a connection between these two stories. Why did he fast and pray for 40 days, which would be insane, just for the record? Why did he do that? I think he wanted a rematch. He was like, my people wandered around the wilderness for 40 years getting their butts kicked by the devil. And he shows up on the scene, and for 40 days he wins the victory. It's like he is looking at us through history saying like, I'm going to do in 40 days what you couldn't do in 40 years. I feel just like that sometimes. That I need Jesus to do in 40 days what I haven't been able to do in 40 years. And so he's driven out into the wilderness and he faces the same temptations we face, but didn't sin. But what you miss if you just read Matthew 4 is the only reason he survived the temptations in Matthew 4, the only reason that he didn't give in to the devil's attack in Matthew chapter 4 is because of what happened in Matthew chapter 3. Where Jesus goes to John the Baptist and he says, I need to be baptized. And you're thinking, why? 
Why does Jesus need to be, get baptized? And this gets taught all the time. It's like, well, Jesus did it to be an example for us. And I'm not saying he did. And I'm just saying it's not in the Bible. Maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. I don't know. It's a good example nonetheless, whether he did it for that reason or not. But Jesus goes to get baptized by John the Baptist. And immediately after his baptism, the sky opens up and the voice of God declares out loud over Jesus' life, this is my beloved son who makes me very happy, who pleases me. The very next verse, Jesus is compelled to go out into the wilderness and he fasts and he prays for 40 days. What's he praying? What's he fasting about? What's he asking God for? Do you guys get it? He only resisted the temptation Look at the pattern that happened before it. He got approval from God, and then he spent time begging God for help. He got God's approval over his life. He got God's grace over his life. Hey, I love you. I've got good plans for you. I'm here for you. I'm never going to leave you. I'm with you. This is my son who pleases me greatly. And then he spent 40 days begging him for help desperately. And then the devil shows up and Jesus kicks him to the curb. And he does what we haven't been able to do our whole lives. To say no to temptation over and over again. Do you see what the way of escape was? What the way of escape is? Yeah, I believe everything Jesus is telling me. I believe everything he's telling me. But it's more than that. I know that he understands what I'm going through. It's more than that. I know that He's experienced all the same things I'm experiencing. It's more than that. I know that he loves me. It's more than that. I know I need to beg him desperately for help. You find somebody that gives in to temptation. You find yourself giving in to temptation today. If I find myself giving in to temptation today, I can almost guarantee you this is what the formula is going to look like. You ready? I've stopped believing something Jesus said is true. Or... I've stopped believing that Jesus really loves me. Or I start thinking I'm the only one that knows what it feels like to feel like this. Or I start thinking there's no way out. Or I start thinking there's no way I'll ever endure it. You get it? You get what he's saying? It's nothing new. You're not the only one that feels lonely or hurt. You're not the only one that feels afraid or desperate. It's nothing new. There is a way out. But you got to quit going to your own self-medications. Instead, you got to go to God the Father and beg Him desperately for help. you got to believe what He says, that He loves you, that He's got you. This is Jesus' approach. This is the way of escape. And so what do you see? He trusted what God wanted for His life over what the devil was showing Him. He believed what God said over what the devil was telling him. He wanted all the glory and credit for great things to go to God the Father instead of seeking to elevate himself. He resisted the lust of the flesh. He resisted the lust of the eyes. He resisted the pride of life. And he did it all in 40 days. Temptations definitely come in. I want to ask you, what's your plan? I hope your plan is the last verse of this paragraph. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. So we know Jesus has our back. We know he knows what it feels like. He understands our weaknesses. He's experienced all the same temptations we have. And now look, because of all that, 
I can come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. And there we'll receive mercy and we'll find grace to help us when we need it most. What do I need? It's not a new medication. What do I need most? It's not another partner to sleep with. What do I need most? It's not another person to punch in the face. It's it's not another car to make me feel satisfied. What do I need most? I need to find myself going boldly to God's throne, begging him for help. And if I do that, guess what I get to find? All the mercy I need for the stuff I've screwed up and all the grace I need to overcome the stuff I'm facing. Are you with me on God's escape plan? The way of escape, moms, dads, kids, everybody in the room, this is the way of escape. You can escape today the battle in your mind if you will simply go boldly to the throne of God and beg him desperately for help. And if you do, you'll find mercy and grace waiting for you. It's nothing new. There's a way out. You can endure. I hope you'll do it today. Can I pray with you? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for our church. Thank you for the truth of your word. I pray that it would wash over our hearts. It would convict us in our souls. And then God, I pray your Holy Spirit would give us the courage to step out in faith and start asking you for help for the battles we're facing, for the temptations we come in contact with every day. God, would you give us the courage to beg for you desperately, to beg for help, and watch as your mercy and grace is unleashed on our lives. Thank you, God, for your truth and your grace. In Jesus' name I pray.